This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. In recent years, the President of the United States has declared that he's had a change of heart about homosexual marriage, where he campaigned in 2008 against it on the basis of his Christian convictions. In 2012, he campaigned on the basis of his support for it. In that same period, a number of state and federal courts have ruled that it is unconstitutional to restrict marriage to heterosexuals. In 2011, the liberal, mainline Presbyterian denomination, the Presbyterian Church USA, voted to permit homosexual and lesbian ministers, and just days ago, voted to redefine find marriage in their book of order to include homosexual marriage. Homosexuality is before us as a cultural, theological, spiritual, and ecclesiastical issue as never before. Sam Albury, pastor in St. Mary's Church, Maidenhead, UK, since 2008, has written a provocative, interesting, and I think excellent book that addresses these questions in a biblical, thoughtful, and pastoral way. He's on campus to talk with us today about how to think through and address these issues. The book is titled, Is God Anti-Gay? And Other Questions About Homosexuality, the Bible, and Same-Sex Attraction. It's published by The Good Book Company, and it's available on Amazon in a couple of formats. Hi, Sam, and welcome to Office Hours. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Well, we are glad you're here, and I know the students were encouraged by what you had to say in chapel today. I had to pull you away from a line of questioners, so we're glad you're here. Let's get started with some basic facts. Let's define our terms. That's always helpful. You distinguish between homosexual and gay, even though those terms are often used as synonyms. So help us define and distinguish these terms so we know what we're talking about. Yeah, thank you. I tend not to describe myself as gay. Um, I prefer to use the phrase same-sex attraction. The reason for that is where I come from, the word gay tends to mean more than just the particular sexual desires you have. It is often used as a word to define who you are, as it's your identity. I tend to distinguish between same-sex attraction and and the word gay. I don't like to describe myself as gay because it often implies a a particular form of lifestyle. So although same-sex attraction is a bit clunkier, it's a bit more wordy, I find it more helpful because it describes the pattern of my feelings. It is not an attempt to define who I am. Yes, exactly. I think the same thing is true in our culture, that gay denotes a social agenda. It denotes a broader identity than simply your sexual identity. So I think we probably share that distinction. Now, you are a Christian who struggles with same-sex attraction. You describe in the book what it was like to talk to people about that. Just give us a sense of what it was like when you began to share that with people. Yeah, I was a Christian for a number of years already when I was coming to terms with this. And it took me years before I felt able to tell Christians this was a battle I was facing, probably five or six years. Part of the reason for that is I had assumed if I just ignored it, it would go away. So I wasn't even thinking about it myself. But then as I was beginning to realise the issue wasn't going away and that I needed help and other people to talk to about it, I was nervous of telling other believers in case I was fearful I might lose their friendship. I was worried that this is the kind of thing you're not supposed to feel if you're a Christian. Worried that I might be letting the side down, worried that I might disgust people. So I had all those fears going through my mind and, and looking back on it, those fears were entirely unfounded because actually my Christian friends and pastors were nothing but fully supportive and encouraging and helpful. That's very important, I think, 
that what you expected to happen didn't happen. So why did you expect that? What is it that led you to think, well, if I share this and if I allow others to help me deal with this, as I help them deal with their sins, that somehow mine are worse than theirs and it will go badly for me? Well, it's often the case that when we have a secret struggle with sin, we can get it out of proportion. And so the very act of telling other people about the battle helped me see it in a slightly more objective light, helped me get it into a right sense of biblical proportion. But up until doing that, I had assumed this is just the worst thing in the whole world, that I was the most disgusting person in the whole world. No one else has ever had the sorts of temptations and thoughts that I've had. And therefore, everyone will be appalled when they find out. But actually, the physical act of telling people helped me to see it in a truer light. And then seeing people not really reacting in any kind of dramatic way also helped as well. You know, the the sky didn't fall down. I didn't burst into flames. Um, (laughs) The world carried on spinning. And you experienced grace too, didn't you? It was wonderful. It was such a blessing for a number of reasons. I now had people I could share with about this issue and say, this is difficult. I need help on this. I felt like I was known in a way that I hadn't been before, simply because although this isn't the centre of who I am, it's still a fairly personal thing that impinges on various areas of life. And therefore, particularly with close friends, I always thought I was slightly letting them down by not telling them about it. So it was a great comfort to feel as though actually it was now known and I didn't have to hide it. And the other thing that was a, a real blessing was it had the effect of making what were already good friendships even closer because I was sharing something very personal, very vulnerable, and it just sort of put the friendship on a deeper level. And one of the effects of that was people felt able to share with me things that were personal to them. And so it actually made good friendships even stronger. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. We're talking to Sam Albury, and he's talking about his book, Is God Anti-Gay? And in it, you write, Sam, that God's message for gay people is the same as his message for everyone. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is one of the mistakes I think we, we make as Christians is we deal with homosexuality as if it's an entirely separate category of people unlike anything else. And so what I'm trying to do in the book is to show actually... That the gospel is the same for all of us. It's not that the gospel is... Jesus didn't come with one gospel for this group of people and another gospel for that group of people. It's the same message for everyone. And the message is repent and believe the gospel. That was the announcement he first made in Mark 1.15. And therefore, it's not as if he's calling gay people to a particularly costly form of discipleship but letting everybody else off the hook. And nor is it the case that he's giving everybody else lots of goodies that he's holding back from gay people. Uh, The fact is there is a cost to discipleship for all of us. All of us are to deny ourselves and take up our cross if we're to follow him. All of us have to give him our lives. There's, There's radical cost for everyone. And there is wonderful blessing for everyone. And so we mustn't be tempted to think, when it comes to the issue of homosexuality, that for those who self-identify as gay, well, the gospel must be worse news for them than it is for somebody else, because that misunderstands the gospel. Which is another trap, right? I mean, if this is a special sort of thing and grace isn't really sufficient for this one, it's okay for heterosexual sins or theft or lying or murder, but homosexual sins, well, that's sort of beyond the pale, which then sets up a trap whereby implicitly people are being questioned or people are questioning whether those who struggle with homosexual sin can be justified and saved. Exactly. We enter a whole world of kind of getting things wrong. So what we mustn't do is abstract the issue of homosexuality 
away from the gospel. And it's not like you water down the definition of repentance. In the book, you write about repentance at some length. What do you mean by it? Well, what I mean by it is when Jesus calls on us to repent, he's calling on us to turn around, to bring our lives back to God. And the implication is is very clear and the implication is very unflattering. He's saying that we're all naturally out of sync with God, that our lives are oriented in the wrong direction. And that's the case for all of us, whatever our sexual desires. And so the call to repentance isn't Jesus saying, you just need to fine tune a bit of your lifestyle here and there. He's saying that all of us are going in the wrong direction. When he says, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's a radical message. It is. It's basically saying God's about to do his thing and you are on a collision course. And that's not a good thing. No. To be on a collision course with a holy God. Exactly. So something dramatic needs to happen. If the kingdom of God isn't going to mow you down, but instead, you know, bring you in, Jesus says you've got to repent. In other words, you've got to stop putting yourself at the center of your life and recognize that everything you are and have is God's and always was. And to recognize your sin for what it is, acknowledge it and turn away from it. And so faith is what? Faith is trusting Christ. It's trusting him that when he calls us to repent, that's a good thing for us to do. It's a healthy thing for us to do. And it's trusting that what he says about his death and resurrection and and what that will do for us, it's believing him at that point. Faith isn't just, I believe that Jesus existed and I believe he died and rose. It's believing that he did those things for me. And it's entrusting myself to him. That all his righteousness is ours by imputation, that everything he's done is credited to us. And we trust that. Wonderfully, yes. That it's true, not just generally, but true for me, the sinner. And so here we are back to Luther, you know, simul justus et peccator, simultaneously righteous on the basis of Christ's righteousness imputed and still, in ourselves, struggling with sin. Absolutely. And that's the gospel in a nutshell, really. And it's for all of us of all sorts of sins. Absolutely. And because we've made homosexuality a category of its own, we've thought of it as being worse than everything else. The flip side of that is that we've slightly thought of ourselves as a bit better than we should have done. Yeah. So there's a a hidden Pharisee inside of each of us. Yeah. You write that our culture wants us to define ourselves in terms of our sexual impulses. What does that do to our self-definition? Why is that inadequate? Well, it's taking one part of our experience and part of our experience that we know is tainted by sin, and it's making that the key to who we are. It's making that the centre of our personhood and humanity. Um, That itself is a very dangerous thing to do because it's making sexual fulfilment an idol. It is saying that unless I can be sexually fulfilled, I'm not really living and I'm not really fulfilling who I am. And the trouble with that is very few people feel sexually fulfilled. I was talking to someone recently who's very happily married. He said, my marriage is better than I ever expected or deserved, but it's not enough. And that's true. I've spoken to students who have the freedom and lifestyle of doing anything they want sexually, and they're realizing it's not enough. Which is the sort of false promise of paganism, right? The whole sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s and now in the 2000s is to say there are no boundaries, there are no laws, you have no fixed relation to nature, you are self-defined, go and actualize yourself sexually. So off the culture goes to do that, and back it comes broken, depressed, lonely, and medicated. Absolutely, and and ironically then blaming the church for part of that. We're the problem because we made them feel guilty and repressed. 
Yeah, and therefore we need to realise there are two things going on with what Jesus does when he teaches on sex. He doesn't just teach that there are boundaries and that sex is for marriage, he does do that. But the other thing he does implicitly is he shows us that sex isn't the centre. And I think that is actually very good news for people today because some people desperately need to hear that. Because the world is saying to them, if you're not sexually fulfilled, your life isn't worth living. And there are people in all kinds of hurt and despair because of that. And to show them, actually, this was never the thing that was meant to satisfy you in the first place is good news for them. Sounds like you've got another book coming titled More Than Sex. I hadn't thought of that, but I will consider that. (laughs) If you get that published, I'll take 3%. Uh, (laughs) You you sketch uh, biblical theology of sexuality and you start with creation, which I thought was encouraging. Many times people start only with redemption and they ignore creation. Why did you start with creation? Why is that important? And I would like you to answer that question right after this. It's critical to get the gospel right because it is the good news of the work of Jesus Christ that is saving. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. Uh, We need the whole Bible. We need the whole message of the Bible. We need the help of the law. We need the crushing work of the law. We must never undervalue or underestimate the importance of the law. But it is what Christ did that is saving. And what by trusting in what Christ did, uh, we are saved. It is by receiving the gospel in faith that we're justified and all the other benefits and fruits of Christ's work flow out of that. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. My understanding is that when Jesus deals with the issue of marriage, he deals with it by going back to Genesis 1 and 2. So when he's asked about divorce in Matthew 19, he makes the foundation of his answer what we know to be the case from Genesis 1 and 2. And so if if it's good enough for him, good enough for me. And what we have in Genesis 1 and 2 is God's blueprint. It's God's design for us. And it is crystal clear. And the rest of the Bible is the outworking and application of that blueprint and design. It hasn't changed. We've changed through the fall, but God's design for us hasn't changed. And we see that reflected all through the Old Testament. We see that reflected in the ethics of the New Testament. And so it's the natural place to start. How has God created us to be? And there are some writers, even non-Christian writers, who acknowledge that there is such a thing as creation or a natural pattern. I think, for example, of Camille Paglia, who has said, look, the whole point of, in her case, being lesbian, is to rebel against the creational pattern. She has been mocking the mainline Presbyterians, the PCUSA, for decades for trying to normalize what she sees as an act of rebellion, which is how she identifies herself. That's interesting. I haven't come across her. How do people respond when you push them a little bit on this idea that there is a creational pattern? I've had various responses to it. Um, For those who are coming at this from a more secular perspective, it's a framework they feel is being foisted on them, which they don't want. But there are some who nevertheless do understand the rationale for it. And part of the reason, I think, for explaining it is to show that our sexual ethics as Christians, it's not arbitrary. It's not that we arbitrarily don't like same-sex relationships. There's actually a rationale and a sense to it all. And I'm trying to show people not just that there's a prohibition in the Bible, but I'm trying to show them what the positive is behind the negative what the biblical vision for marriage is, and why, therefore, as Christians, we can't accept things that lie outside of that vision. And we live in a culture which is deeply suspicious of any norms, and all norms are increasingly being regarded as 
as you said, arbitrary for a variety of reasons that would take too long for us to explain and discuss here. It's interesting to hear how people are responding because I have been pushing people on the creational narrative as a way of framing the discussion, and I've had some of the same sorts of responses. You also want us to think properly of sexuality in a redemptive framework. How do you think about that, and how does that complement the idea that sexuality is first framed by creation? Well, it just helps me to think theologically about what I'm experiencing in my own life. So theology is so helpful, isn't it? So I experience same-sex attraction. I know that's not a reflection of how God created me, but a reflection of how sin has distorted me. I also know that it is that in Christ I am a new creation, and therefore I'm no longer defined by any of my sinful proclivities. So in terms of thinking of it in a, in a redemptive sense, it, it's thinking through how through the gospel I'm saved from my sins. I am to be pursuing holiness and, and purity in Christ, and also trying to think through what is the good that God will press this whole experience into. You know, for as long as this remains a battle that I face, I trust it is part of the all things that God is working for the good of those who love him, and trusting him with the long-term outcome of the whole battle. The Anglican Catechism from 1662 that I'm looking at summarizes the seventh commandment thus, quoting now, to keep my body in temperance, soberness, and chastity, which is a lovely, remarkably brief summary. How do those nouns, temperance, soberness, and chastity, clarify the Christian attitude towards sexuality generally and SSA in particular? Well, it reminds us that we have a responsibility to, to steward our sexuality in a godly way. God is the one who's created us. He's the one who, who knows what is best for us. He makes it very clear in his word that sex is a gift given for marriage between a man and a woman, and that to partake in any kind of sexual activity outside of that context is to misuse that gift of sex, and it won't be for our good. So therefore, it's not the case that we Christians are committing ourselves to some abstract and unrealistic standard. It is simply the case that we are living out who we now are in Christ. And therefore, the call to live a life of chastity and purity for those of us who are unmarried to be chaste in our celibacy is simply a way of saying, this is now what it means to go with the grain of who I am in Christ. Even those of us with a heterosexual orientation who may be married are also called to chastity, soberness, and temperance. I think those are very striking words that we don't hear very often, but which really strike the nail very squarely. In the context of the United States, when one says temperance, we think about people marching in the streets and bashing in casks of whiskey and things, but it means much more than that. It means to uh, restrain one's self and soberness. Who thinks about soberness today relative to sexuality? Isn't the first thing when we think of sexuality almost the antithesis of soberness? And yet that's one of the three words that the catechism uses to describe our sexuality and how it ought to be. Yeah, we tend to think today that my happiness will be guaranteed by letting my passions run amok and by fulfilling them to the fullest extent. And it's just a reminder that in the Christian life, we know that actually true joy, true flourishing is found within the constraint of God's word. You know, that is true freedom. It's not freedom from any kind of constraint. It's freedom within the constraint God has designed us for. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. We're talking with Sam Albury about his book, Is God Anti-Gay? In the book, you quote... 1 Corinthians 6.11, and so I'll read that. And such were some of you, but you were washed, 
you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. How is that good news for all of us struggling with sin, and particularly with sexual sin? Well, it reminds us that what may have once defined us no longer does. So Paul is writing to Christians who had been characterized by those sorts of sins, and he says, that is what you were. It is not who you are. It's not that you'll never be tempted. No. But that is not the defining characteristic. Exactly. And that's Both of those points are very important. The fact that Paul has to say, don't be deceived, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God, implies, at least on some level, some of those Christians were being tempted to go back into that lifestyle. Paul's point is to say, it's just not who you are anymore. Because you've been washed and justified and sanctified, those things are not you in the way that they once were. And that is a wonderfully liberating thing to know as a believer, because it means, as I pursue holiness, I'm not trying to be somebody else. I'm not trying to be some guy I can never be. The voice of the evil one says to me, stop trying to be someone else, stop trying to be someone you're not. But actually the voice of the Holy Spirit in scriptures like that says to me, no, actually you are never more truly yourself than when you are pursuing holiness. That is when you are going with the grain of who you are. Such were some of you, but that is not who you are anymore. So be true to your spiritual self now. There's so many things that I would like to discuss, and yet the clock is against us and we're running out of time. One of the things that impressed me about your book is God Anti-Gay. It's available on Amazon and other places online in, in a couple of formats, is that you don't shy away at all from what the New Testament in particular and the Old Testament says about homosexuality, that there is a temptation to sort of trim the narrative and make it a little more culturally friendly. So in case the listener is wondering, well, you know, what is this fellow saying? I would encourage you to read the book for yourself to see, look, this is a square dealing with the difficult teaching of Scripture. And it's difficult because our culture, I think both where you are and certainly where I am, is going in the opposite direction. So the question I want to ask is, how do we negotiate that tension when we see the culture rushing headlong away from what we understand Scripture to teach? You know, we face the temptation to sort of, as I say, trim the story a bit. If we don't trim the story, how do we negotiate that? Yeah, so we've got to try and do a couple of things at the same time. As you say, we've got to be faithful to the scriptures and not bow to the pressure to change the message. And, you know, we we shouldn't be surprised that there are things in the Bible that go right against the grain of what our culture is most into at the moment. It's one of the things that reflects how the Bible is actually the eternal word of God, is that in any cultural context, there'll be certain things the Bible affirms and certain things that the Bible critiques. And so we shouldn't be worried that the Bible is so out of step with contemporary society, because it's a reminder that the Bible has come from outside of contemporary society. So we must resist the temptation to adjust our message and to make it more palatable. But I think the other thing we need to do is to try to, as we are faithful to that message, is is to try to present as compelling and positive a vision of the biblical message as we possibly can. And so I don't think it is enough just to say to culture, well, I'm sorry, but Romans 1 says homosexuality is wrong. I think we have an obligation to try and articulate not just what the Bible says, but why the Bible says it and to show that the Bible has a beauty and coherence to it on the whole issue of sexuality and to set what it says about homosexuality in the wider context of what it says about marriage. And as we think about what the Bible says about marriage, we are talking about God's way of visualizing Christ's relationship to the church. So there's a way of speaking on this issue, I think, that actually can point to the positives of the gospel and not just linger on the prohibitions that we see about sexual behavior. 
As we do that, and as people come into congregations or as Christians have contact with people who either identify as homosexual or gay or who are struggling with same-sex attraction, there are some pitfalls into which we sometimes fall, particularly those of us who struggle with heterosexual sins. What are some of those pitfalls, and how can we minister most graciously to those who are struggling with a different set of sins? One pitfall is that we always think somebody else's sin is worse than our own. A pastor said to me a few months ago, he said, one of the problems I have with ministering to gay people is that I find them disgusting. And he said, how can I minister to them and not find them disgusting? And the only thing I could think to say to him was to find your own sin more disgusting. <laughs> exactly. It, uh, if you're disgusted by the sins of others, you clearly haven't looked at your own heart recently. Exactly. And it's so easy to look down on the sins of others. And it's just a sign that we've lost sight of our own depravity within. So that's one pitfall. Another pitfall is to define someone by their struggle with same-sex attraction so if we're aware of someone maybe in our church or fellowship who is battling with this issue it can easily become the lens through which we see them and that is a dangerous thing because it must never be the lens through which they see themselves and so if that's the only way we see them that's the only thing we kind of think about when we think of them if which that, gets us back to first corinthians 6 right yeah. such were some of you if somebody comes to us who let's say has been convicted of theft we never introduce them to other people typically by saying here's fred you know he used to be a thief yeah right we don't slap them with that label and then put them in the box and say this is all they'll ever be no and even if we're recognizing that they're now a christian we still mustn't define them by some of their temptations because they mustn't define themselves by it. We've just got to see them as a normal Christian who has a slightly different set of sexual temptations to ourselves. But it's a difference of degree and not of type. And this is certainly something that would have been addressed in the Greco-Roman world in which Scripture was given. If you talk to my colleague, Steve Baugh, he can describe for you the graphic sort of sexual advertisement in Ephesus in the first century. So that we live in a you know, time and a place where we're bombarded with sexual messages, and they didn't have the same media that we do now, but they made prolific use of the media that they did have. And so, presumably, some of those people came into the congregation in Ephesus. And so, even then, you know, we've, in other words, we've always had to deal with these challenges. Absolutely. It's always a danger to think that our own age is entirely new, and therefore, you know, no one has ever faced these issues before. This is the first time, you know, we almost need a third testament for our own age kind of thing. <laughs> the devil doesn't have that kind of wit or creativity. There's nothing new under the sun. One of the things to sort of draw to a close our discussion and to go back to where we began, one of the things about which you write is the power of being able to talk to other Christians about one's struggle with sin. I have this concern that we're coming to a point where that sort of honesty, as appropriate, is becoming more difficult. So encourage us about the value of sharing one another's burdens. Well, it's something the New Testament calls us to in multiple places in a number of different ways. We're told to confess our sins to one another. We're told, as you just referenced, to bear one another's burdens. We're told to spur one another on to love and good deeds. And we're told to encourage one another daily as long as it's called today. And so part of that is at least helping one another in the particular areas where we struggle with sin. And so it's hard to confess your sins to one another without confessing your sins to one another. And part of our church culture, therefore, needs to be that we recognize that all of us are battling, all of us are fighting sin, and that we're designed as Christians to need one another. 
in that battle. And so we must never get ourselves into the point where we think, well, like, you know, we're not supposed to, to mention these sorts of things in church or, or anything like that because we need each other. That's how God has made us to be as his people. We need the support, encouragement, times we need the rebuke and the correction of our fellow brothers and sisters. It's one of the main ways God has given us to keep us Christian and to grow us in our faith and to give us progress in our ongoing battle with sin. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.